Hey everyone, this is Sean. And Brian. Now normally at the start of each episode, Brian turns to me and says, How you doing today, Sean? To which I normally reply, super as always. Now in the last week, we haven't been feeling super as always. In fact, we've been feeling downright shitty. You know, Sean and I are both aware there are many people around the world who are going to be much more directly, much more immediately affected by the calamitous event of the election of Donald Trump than we are. It doesn't mean that we're any less upset about it, as I'm sure probably nearly every one of you is as well. We record our episodes a few weeks in advance. And at the initial recording of this episode, we made quite a few jokes about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton hoping and expecting that come November 9th, Hillary Clinton would be deemed the President of the United States. As we all know, that hasn't been the case. Right, so you're not going to hear any of that banter in this episode. Pardon us if the conversation seems a little bit disjointed. I mean, at one point, uh, a few days ago, not long ago, both of us, I think, felt we weren't even sure if we'd have the (laughs) composure to record any more podcasts at all. But I think one of the things that we both agree on is that in the face of this very real and terrible situation, we've all got to keep doing the things that we've always been doing. Yeah, and for us, we've got to be activists. We've got to live our lives according to the values we believe in. But it also means that we want to do the things that make us feel good. And for us, that's watching movies that's recording these conversations for all of you, and it's celebrating the feminine, the queer, and the diverse subjects that have always been part of Broad Appeal. And we're not going to stop doing that. No. Now, of course, both of us do wish that we could do the time warp again and go back to some date before November 8th and change this outcome, but we can't. So you know what, Brian? On with the show. Welcome to Broad Appeal. This is the fourth episode in our mini-series, The Male Gaze, looking at films about conflicted and complicated masculinity. Sean, we're halfway through the men in our lives. Speak for yourself, Mullen. <laughs> I want to live. What does that mean? That's Susan Hayward. I know, what does it have to do with anything? <laughs> Shall I just say random best actress winning movies? Mrs. Miniver. I've got Susan Hayward fever. My brain is at a disproportionately huge and heated level. Death is imminent. <laughs> okay. But please try to move past it because we are looking at a film that has nothing to do with Susan Hayward. What is the film, the cult classic, that we will be uh, speaking about on today's episode? Brian, today I'm sharing with you a film that you've somehow never seen, 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think this is one of those conversations where you are going to take the reins and I am going to sit at your feet like Plato at the uh, at the feet of Socrates imbibing the knowledge because what <laughs> you're going to be like a, a rodent <laughs> snuffling up Proust's madelines yeah <laughs> the pig searching for troubles no Sean basically i am aware of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a cultural force i know certain things about it I... as a theater maker of course well but this is the thing I guess I knew it was a stage show. Uh, A while ago, I was absolutely shocked and fascinated to learn that the original production of the Rocky Horror Show, the, the theatrical work on which this film is based, premiered at London's Royal Court Theatre. At the theatre upstairs. Yeah, I was I was amazed because in my mind, um, the Royal Court sort of represents everything that's 
avant-garde and experimental the, at the cutting edge of new writing, whether that's, you know, Look Back in Anger or Waiting for Godot or Samuel Beckett. And here in, what, 1973, I think it was, mm-hmm. this camp musical parody of, what is it, like, sci-fi and horror movies. Basically, yes. A trashy B-movie sci-fi horror from, uh, like, the RKO days. It somehow became a surprise theatrical hit, took the world by storm, moved into big commercial success. And somehow, even though I knew people who, on my college campus, participated in the annual live Halloween, you know, interactive performance of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I never went to see it. I think I somehow thought that I I wouldn't like it. Um, well, it has the word horror in it, Brian. Well, yeah, it's true. I don't like horror movies. But I do like campy parodies. Just in my mind, I associate people who like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, not with cool gay hipsters like you, but with sort of comic book reading, trench coat wearing... I mean, I was probably involved in some kind of cultural profiling, but I just thought... They're sort of nerdy, but not in the way that I'm nerdy. Mm-hmm. Sort of nerdy in the, the way that people who like Anne Rice novels and... Mm-hmm. But also rock and roll and punk and leather and glam rock as well. There's only one of those things I like. I'll, I'll let people guess which one it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're such a leather queen, aren't you? <laughs> Your boots are probably made of pleather. Just call me the James Franco of this podcast. Yeah, you're the James Franco of leather, i.e. you pretend you're into it. But you're not really... (laughs) Okay, Sean, we're not getting anywhere with this. Okay, I was fascinated when we were getting to know each other that you seem to be so into the Rocky Horror Picture Show because I generally think of you as someone with taste. Excuse me, Brian. Can I just say, the Rocky Horror Show, you wonder why it was such a success in the Royal Court? Because it has amazing songs, brilliant characters, Fun performance. And did I mention amazing songs? You you actually did mention Yeah, I know it is. I'm saying it just so you... Okay, I'm ready to be dazzled. Yeah. Okay, so let me tell you about my theories of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 41 years this film has been around, okay? It is still edgy, subversive, transgressive, sexy, fun. And did I mention amazing songs, by the way? It's a film about a group of misfits who are essentially the people you want to be. It's about two white bread characters who find themselves in a situation that's both weird and scary, but at the same time, they look at these people and think, oh, what a, what a, what a, what a life, you know, what a world, what a strange world. And putting those weirdos at the centre of the film really appealed to a kind of a, a weirdo culture. And I think there's a reason why people, it's in their late teens or in their early college years resonate with this picture because it gives you a chance to kind of experiment with clothes, hair, makeup, whether you're gay or straight, male or female, or anything else you want to be. Now, my reservations about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's in the same way I have reservations about the poetry of Sylvia Plath, okay? At a certain point in your life, you love Sylvia Plath, and she's the most amazing thing in the world. Daddy. Daddy. Daddy cool. (laughs) If you are age 40, okay, and you still think, God, Sylvia Plath, what an amazing poetess. You kind of haven't really developed as far as I'm concerned, okay? If you're at a, if you're at 40 and you saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show 20 years ago and it's still something you go to regularly or do whatever, it just shows a kind of a, 
a refusal to grow up. So are you saying to me that I've just got a three-year window? It's a good thing that I'm seeing the, seeing the movie now. <laughs> well, you can like it for three years and then you've got to stop. Okay, okay. But what I mean is it resonates with you at a very particular point in your life and it resonates hard. Like, if I had a particularly bad day at school, I would come home and stick in my taped-off-the-telly VHS of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I would sing along to it and I would have a great time before I had to do any of my homework. And it, it was a big part of my life. It kind of symbolized a realization of my gayness, as it were. But not in any kind of sexualized way, if you ask me. When you see Rocky, you'll see that he's a buff muscle stud. Long before buff muscle studs were on every street corner here in London. What about in Longford? Uh, listen, the last thing to a six-pack was a six-pack of, like, Aldi beer that you found in Longford. <laughs> I first saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show on a weird, weird night on Network 2 called Camping It Up on 2, in which they showed a documentary about the alternative Miss Ireland, which, dear listeners, I ended up participating in three times. Explain what that is. The alternative Miss Ireland was a beauty talent pageant show that lasted for 18 years in Ireland. A drag beauty talent. A drag, yeah. yeah I, sh- I, don't know, the... I don't know why I admitted that part. It's a drag <laughs> beauty contest. It was like Rue O'Paul's <laughs> drag race. Polo Rue. <laughs> and um, a documentary about that. A documentary about Irish drag queens going to, to America um, for something. But also a prayer at bedtime with Panty. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Panty, who is a bona fide star now in Ireland and internationally, who was fundamental of getting and progressing the LGBT agenda in Ireland, especially in relation to same-sex marriage. But I am digressing. The climax of the whole evening was was a, was a screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's funny because. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's not like a TLA release or a Peccadillo picture or something you find on Netflix. It's not like, you know, Juan and Carlos have stirrings on the tennis courts. It's it's <laughs> it's like the most digestible form of LGBT rep- representation you can fit on Netflix too. And I had always wanted to see it. I remember being on package holidays in the Costa del Sol doing the time warp in like my early tweens. Who taught you that? Uh, Brian... It's just it's jump to the left and then a step to but, the right. But I mean, yeah, but yeah, yeah, you yeah. had to be instructed in that by someone. Holiday reps. <laughs> Holiday reps. You know? But Brian, the thing is, it's part of the cultural language, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, my parents had seen it. They'd both been to see it at the classic cinema in Harold's Cross in Dublin. Can I can I interrogate <laughs> this slightly? So... Your parents had seen this. It was it was it was referenced in TV yeah, programs. Yeah, it was refer- referenced constantly in like straight up, straight package holiday tours. It's kind of acceptable for anyone to like it. It's a rock musical, you know. Yeah, there's, there's bikers in it, catchy songs, Susan Sarandon, TNA. It's very palatable even for a rural Irish family. So you finally saw it, Camping Up the Classics, or yeah. whatever it was called. And Camping It Up on 2. Was this just a one-time event? It was event? a one-time event. God. It was so weird. Never before or since. Good thing you know. stayed at home that night. Babe, where else are you going to go? <laughs> I was 15. And to, I, and to, I had mass, any Sean, to confession. What effect did it have on you? It was tremendous. This isn't some tormented gay teen story. My story, that is, you know? Because... Much of the film of the Rocky Horror Picture Show is about two people who have extraordinary things happen to them when they least expect it. And I was wanting that to happen to me. 
Can I just ask you, what's the film about? Do you have any idea? Well, as far as I know, Susan Sarandon and the great Barry Bostwick, who went on to star, of course, in uh, TV sitcoms of, of my youth, they play your sort of typical 50s-style male and female ingenue couple who get thrown into a world of, I don't know, crazy monsters and mad scientists. I, that, that's That's my understanding. And it includes... Someone who I do know the name of the character, Dr. Frank N. Furter, played by Tim Curry, who, as far as I know, is a transvestite. Yeah. Now, what the actual plot of it all involves, I have no idea, and I kind of don't want to know. I'd rather be kept in the dark. The stage version of Rocky Horror was a surprise sort of big cult hit, but it was then made as a studio film, is that right? Yes, they basically gave director Jim Sharman and his producer and, and Richard O'Brien, who's both in the film and wrote the film, a choice. They said, we can make this film for quite a nice budget if you'll cast X, Y, and Z contemporary rock stars in the roles. What, like, well-known people? I'm guessing, you know, Toya Wilcox, maybe... The Captain and Tennille? Maybe. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> As from what I heard from Richard O'Brien talking about it, it wasn't like Mick Jagger. I think it was it was literally what we've just said, which was very in vogue people at one point who were gone, you know? Nothing against Toy Wilcox fans, I swear to God, but I have no idea who I'm talking about. Nope, nope. <laughs> the only Wilcox I know is Henry Wilcox, husband of Margaret Schlegel. <laughs> That's all for the Merchant Ivory fans out there. <laughs> Carry on. So they said, no, what we want to do is we want to keep the original cast, you know, accepting the roles that were inevitably played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon. Sarandon, excuse me. Sarandon? Back roles. Anyway, so as a result, the budget of the film went down substantially. So if you see any big set pieces, God knows they had one take and they used it regardless. So it, was, so it was made on a shoestring and with people who were more or less virtual unknowns in the film world. Like Tim Curry, he was a stage actor of some renown, had done like some quite serious classical work, but basically had never been in a movie before. Yeah, this was his first feature film. Susan Sarandon, we heard her interviewed recently on Mark Marin, and she was basically saying she was kind of plucked out of small roles in 70s movies to do this. She couldn't even really sing. It was Jill here. And it, and it freaked her out. And what happened to the film? Was it Was it well received? It was received, and then it kind of disappeared. Until it began getting midnight showings. And gradually, people who went to see these midnight showings started dressing up as the characters and, you know, saying the lines. And also, it, it became very performative. There's all these things you do when you watch the film that I don't actually know about, except I think... When they have a toast, they throw slices of toast in the air, or, mm. or you know, they throw rice at the wedding scene, and those kind of little practices, they kind of became cultish in their own right. A sort of almost religious type ritual, I mean, with the very definition of cult. Exactly. But my question is, we've decided to include this film in our series, The Male Gaze, looking at masculinity. What should I be paying attention to in terms of masculinity here? So Tim Curry, as Frank N. Furter, as far as I know, is a fishnet-stocking-wearing transvestite. Is that the term that they use in the film? It is the term they use in the film, and I would say it's still the term we should use now, because he's not a trans character, he's not a straight male character, ostensibly he's a bisexual alien who wears clothing of the female gender. Is that a spoiler alert, him being an alien? 
Uh, no, I mean, it's not a spoiler. The song goes, I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. But Transylvania is not another planet. Yes, it is in this film. <laughs> okay, but not in real life. <laughs> no, it's in Romania. That's what we know. Shout out to all my Romanian friends. But wait, so you much. just said from transsexual. Yeah, the planet transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. Well, see, but that's quite interesting. So <laughs> what you're arguing is that he's not, or she is not, or they are not. They call him Frank. They say he. Yeah, okay. But I guess what I'm asking, because obviously we, we haven't seen it, but there is a TV remake of this with probably the most famous trans actress, Laverne Cox, put into the role of Frankenfurter. Do you think that when they decided to do that for TV, they realized that in the modern conception of this character, that it was inevitably going to read in a different way than it did in 1975? I don't think that exactly. What I think really is that we live in an age where the visibility of trans characters is much greater. To have a role which is about gender fluidity and gender bending and transgressing when you have the option to put a trans character, especially a black trans character, in a very prominent role, or you could put in, you know, cisgendered white male in the role, what do you want to? Pref- what do you I guess. Choose? I guess what I'm saying is that for decades, it's not as if you didn't have characters, particularly in comedies or parodies who were either cross-dressing or playing with gender, but as the butt of jokes. I mean, we could think of lots of examples of that, yeah? Where the idea of donning some of the clothes of the other gender or identifying with the clothes of the other gender was considered freakish, strange, laughable, or something that, like, a straight man does, oh, I don't know, because his wife, Sally Field, is uh, divorcing him and he wants more time with his children. You know, those old tropes. Or you want, you can't get a part on a soap opera. And some of these movies are great. But what I'm saying is they use trans identity as a kind of comic device. So are you saying that it's not just used for camp comic value, but it's actually an interesting examination of identity? Well, I wouldn't say that this role is not brim full of camp. It sure as hell is. What I'm saying is, it's just so damn fluid. I mean, Frank goes by the name Frank. They use the he pronouns. He's also got a head full of makeup and fishnets, but also very evidence. Like, you can see his junk through his little, you know, panties. Well, now my interest is peaked. <laughs> I think this is why Frank resonated with so many people across the, the world, you know, the Midwest and wherever you know, Idaho, whatever. Because he's so fluid, you can just be him, whatever you want to or not. Gay, straight, anything. Okay. Well, that that's very interesting and very exciting. So you're saying, in a sense, that this character, Frank, is not the butt of jokes here, but the sort of presiding comic presence. A lord of misrule, of gender misrule. Yeah, and he's so the active presence in the whole film as well. So if I can just kind of make a triangle or a triptych of masculine identity here. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got Frank. Yeah. You've got Brad, who's played by Barry Bostwick. And then you have Rocky Horror. Rocky, who is the creation of Frank. Uh-huh. Okay? Frank... As I said, fishnets, makeup, hair, campiness, gender fluidity, everything, okay? Then you have uptight, rigid, white bread, bookish, nerdy farm boy, Brad. And then you have this blonde-haired, gold hot-pants-wearing Adonis, who is Rocky Horror. And they, to me, seem to represent three types of masculinity. Kind of Frank bridging the gap between Rocky and Brad. Each one of these masculinities 
is kind of fragile in its own way. It's in a kind of a, its own particular universe. We've used the term in various ways, which is hard to define. That term, Susan, is camp. Mm-hmm. What does camp mean to you, Sean? Jeez, Brian, that's actually uh, quite a big question to ask. Well, I guess camp's a sensibility, isn't it? It's yeah. A, it's a fun, playful, irreverent, kind of a uh, button-pushing sensibility. Um, to be honest, I, I think people even dispute whether Susan Sontag's famous essay Notes on Camp actually defines camp, or whether it was just another version of her sort of intellectual appropriation of something. Mm. But the thing, the quote I do remember from Notes on Camp is that it's a, it's an attitude that puts everything in quotation marks, mm. right? Aestheticizing everything. So you're suggesting that what Rocky Horror, one of the things it's doing here is taking masculinity, which is kind of the totemic sort of force shaping society, the kind of stable organizing principle of of domesticity and patriarchy, and kind of making it something that's slightly more performative, like, like so heightened that it almost becomes ridiculous. True. Yeah. And it's also doing that to the sensibilities of the genre of sci-fi and horror and the American family as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm really excited to watch this movie. It's a it's a huge lacuna in my lacuna matata. <laughs> in my in my cultural knowledge and my own camp sensibility. Hey, listen. So, we've talked about a lot of clever things here, okay? Do you know any of the songs? Something about a time warp? Yeah, the time warp. Yeah. yeah, is that a dance craze or something? You'll learn the dance by the end of the song. It's very easy to learn. I have definitely seen clips of Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, I think. I think it's so interesting looking at her as this kind of interchangeable girl. Little did they know that she would go on to be a multiple Oscar nominee. in, in And eventual winner. An eventual winner and... Uh, and ultimate Bernie bro. But, I mean, really, honestly, Sean, is there any Hollywood actress you'd rather light a doobie up with? Kathy Bates, maybe? Mm. Well, I think we might have to... <gasps> or Cher! <laughs> I would get stoned with Cher well, so fast. I actually, Cher's on her way here to the underground bunker. It's just taken her, it's just taken actually, her a while. She's been the victim of nuclear war, but she's still, she's still standing. She's still standing. <laughs> we haven't seen the last of her. So I think we maybe ought to roll a fat one, Sean, and, and, and watch this horrible show that we're about to Brian, see. Brian, you know I don't have any. Don't mock me. Don't make me feel any worse. <laughs> yeah, it's just Gary Johnson. Gary, <laughs> if you're listening. President Johnson, help us. <laughs> All right. It's the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's about to start. Just a moment, Janet. We don't want to interfere with their celebrations. This isn't the Junior Chamber of Commerce, Brad. They're probably foreigners with ways different than our own. They may do some more folk dancing. Look, I'm cold, I'm wet, and I'm just plain scared. I'm here. There's nothing to worry about. How'd you do, I? See, you've met my faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dime, because when you knocked, he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung out by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite. 
transsexual, Transylvania. <laughs> Let me show you a rhyme, maybe play you a sign. You look like you're both pretty grooving. Or if you want something visual, that's not too abysmal. We could take in an old Steve Reeves movie. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. Right. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry. Well, you got caught with a flat wheel. How about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual Transylvania. And we're back. I have just experienced aspects of my youth flashing before my eyes. Brian, how did you feel? Sean, this is a first. You're speechless. I am. <laughs> I cannot analyze this film. Babe, are you saying you can't analyze it or you won't analyze I, it? This film defies analysis. What? It welcomes it. I think you were absolutely right in the first half when you said that this is the sort of thing you have to see at a young an impressionable time of your life. Because I had this dual experience. On one level, I'm like, oh, I can see why this shoddily made, kooky, nonsensical, shapeless, manic film... <laughs> responded to Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not just to Sean, but to, like, a range of people the world over for decades. And yet, it did virtually nothing for me. I don't want to get hate mail. People, if you're listening to this and you're Rocky Horror Picture Show fans, I'm not denigrating the film or you and your love for it. I suspect if I... Actually, no. I was about to say, if I was young and I saw this movie, I would have liked it. I don't think I would. Like, the movie that filled this role to me, and this says a lot about the difference between me and you, Sean, is Thoroughly Modern Millie, which, if listeners don't know, don't go watch it, is 1967's insanely campy, nonsensical Julie Andrews movie, which is not a good movie, but which I've seen many times and was my introduction to camp. That is the movie that adolescent Brian needed. Uh, uh, if I may interject, Go I on. also liked Thirty Modern Millie as a child. Just saying. <laughs> and I turned out just fine with, well, the, I, with both these films. I guess you contain multitudes, Sean. Yeah. I'm I, in a box and I'll have sides. One side fits all. Name the film, Brian. <sighs> Is it Postcards from the Edge? You know it is. Whenever you say something that I don't know, it's Postcards from the Edge. What I'm saying is, having watched this movie, I am literally dumbfounded. I took a bunch of notes. I did not like this movie. And yet, I don't want to be a grump about it. Like, I was about to say, I recognize its singularity, but I kind of don't either. Okay, I think you're veering towards being a grump and trying to be nice. I mean, Brian, you are a grump. You're weird. You're like one of the most enthusiastic people I know, but you're also a massive grump. But I also want to tell you that it's okay that you didn't like this film. I think we need to identify the, the very simple plot. Well, it's not that simple, but I'm going to make it simple. Actually, it's no plot. But it's a plot in inverted commas. Okay, Brian has pointed out that this is a classic Adam and Eve story. 
It's about two youngsters, Brad and Janet, who agreed to get married. And before they could go through with it, they want to go all the way back to the science professor who introduced them to each other in his class. On the way there, they get a flat tire in the middle of a storm. They get out of the car and search for a telephone and discover a weird castle with spooky bikers and kitsch gothic interiors and weird staff. It's, it's a hunting lodge for weirdos. <laughs> Rich weirdos. <laughs> and it seems to be hosting a convention by a mad transvestite fishnet wearing... Scientist. Scientist, yeah. And they leave this adventure being changed, changed utterly. And not just changed, but it's literally the loss of their innocence. Their sort of moral innocence, their innocence as a humanoid species, and also they're deflowered. Like, they're very definitely deflowered. They're both deflowered by the same person as well, separately. It's a story of, like, desire bubbling up. Can I just say to, like, stay with my grump card for a while here? I think the thing that bothers me, and this is going to sound like such a pedantic comment, this movie came out in 1975. The play was done a few years before. To be honest, anyone who was paying attention to or following trends in avant-garde, underground, and queer theater and filmmaking for more than 10 to 15 years previously... This movie is not radical or interesting. It is derivative. I suspect what makes this movie such a hit among a certain cult thing is that it takes things that, like, Andy Warhol was doing for years, Jack Smith was doing for years, downtown venues in New York City like La Mama and, you know, Theatre of the Ridiculous were doing, of this kind of sending things up in big, like phallic Freudian terms and it put it on the stage of the Royal Court then on Broadway and then onto movie screens and like that's all well and good but like as someone who's as someone who's been there no as <laughs> someone who's studied some of that I find those other earlier works to be more interesting and artful okay, if I can stop this. you there as they say if I can push back on you slightly push right? push just to give it some context, Richard O'Brien, the creator of Rocky Horror, grew up on a sheep farm in New Zealand. He grew up with magazines that had, you know, coupons to send away for x-ray glasses and scientific fads, and saw Charles Atlas Fitness magazines and The Body Beautiful, who also was fascinated by RKO sci-fi films. It's, it is derivative. You're absolutely right that it's derivative, but I don't think derivative is always a bad word. It derives from so many different things. And him being in London in the, in the 60s, I presume, and definitely the 70s, partook in whatever kind of but gender not, creation was going you're, you're on. Not, you're not hearing my point, Sean. I'm not saying it's derivative of RKO and Charles Atlas and all these other references. I'm saying it's derivative of the way those similar tropes were used by more interesting artists in the decades before who basically did the same thing. I'm, when I say derivative, I don't mean that it's referential. It is, yes, referring to all these things. But what I'm saying is that by 1975, like, this representation of, like, oh, crazy... Sec I mean, Stonewall was 1969. Yeah, but like, six I years, Brian. It's only six years. I'm just saying, like, I think this movie is hip and edgy, exactly as you said before, to a teenage sensibility. 
And, and if it, I also it, may say, yeah, because this is a 28th century Fox film, it got a certain amount of distribution in places and also got redistributed as well. There's people who grew up in Boise, Idaho, who would have seen yeah. this before they saw anything else. Of course, of course. But it's just like in the same way that like every artistic movement has its like pioneers and its avant-garde actual practitioners who are carving out a new space. And then the people who come at the tail end and like represent that to mass culture. That's what I think the Rocky Horror Picture Show is doing with a queer sensibility. And I will also say that I think watching it, you and me, in our little flat together, is not the ideal way to see this movie. And I suspect that actually a live interactive performance of it, or even I was trying to cast my mind to like being in the theater upstairs at the Royal Court and watching a much more kind of anarchic live version of this. And I thought to myself, oh, this must have seemed so fun on a kind of like shoestring uh, thing that you sort of discover that you don't expect it to be as crazy and chaotic as it is. Whereas when it's this cult film that I've heard about for decades and then I'm like, this is the thing that everyone's been talking about? Do you know what I mean? Of course, you know, but it's funny you say about seeing it with a live audience because I got to that point where I don't think I ever want to see it with a live audience because I think I'd find them all deeply annoying. Yeah, probably. Can I just, before I start to get hate mail from everybody, can I just say... We don't have enough fans for that, Brian. <laughs> there are things about this movie that I did very much like. Oh, what? I know, I know. <laughs> the movie as a whole left me cold, but I, I found the performances very interesting and exciting. Susan Sarandon is clearly a star in the making, like... She completely understands what she's doing in this film, which is to play a kind of archetype, but with enthusiasm and a sort of winking knowingness at the same time. She, as an actress, is much more intelligent than Janet is as a character. She's great. Tim Curry is phenomenal in this movie. I mean, the whole, I, I really think the whole movie would fall down if it weren't for Tim Curry's performance. In addition to being very funny and his voice going all these different registers, he's also insanely sexy. Like, yeah. really sexy. Yeah, very sexy. And I want to ask you, you talked about, like, liking this movie, but I want to know, like, what effect it had on your libido, because... I was surprised at how overtly, not just camp, but overtly homosexual this film was. Because essentially, he makes a boy toy sex slave in gold lame tight trousers and is like stroking him, caressing him, and talking about how he's going to relieve his tension. It's funny, you know when you get older, and things that you've witnessed when you were younger, and you see them again, it, when I watched it, I was like, shit, did I watch that 20 times as a kid and not go, you know? Well, I mean, yeah. That part where he has this kind of faux wedding with Rocky, and then as this kind of curtain is closing in on their marital boudoir, he just jumps onto him. On his crotch, On yeah. his crotch. Yeah. And I watched this with you, and I was like, whoa. We both actually went, whoa. Not because we were shocked, but more like, in this very playful, campy sensibility, there's a few flashes of quite aggressive sexuality. It's that, and it's also the symbology. I mean, he wears, like, a pink triangle on his outfit at one point. He wears a motorcycle jacket with, you know, badges. It's clear Kenneth Anger references. Yeah. And that... then, and also, Rocky, when he's being created, is in this vat of fluid that makes a freaking rainbow flag. 
my sense of the Rocky Horror Picture Show was always that it was kind of a thing for sort of straight goth type people. But like watching this, I was like, this should be shown at Christopher Street. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there's also that part where he strokes his finger down from Rocky's nape to just beneath his navel, slowly going down this very buff man's naked torso. And like the music kind of slows down at that point. It's it's erotic. And then and then there's a actually probably my favorite part of the movie is these twin scenes where once Brad and Janet have been lured into the mansion, they are stripped down to their underwear, first of all, and then they're put into separate boudoir. Little fact for you. Yeah. That was the same set they used for both, just with a different light shining Wow. On. Yeah, probably because they had nobody. <laughs> anyway, so Frankenfurter sneaks into both of their beds, disguising himself as the partner, but actually it's him. And he essentially sexually assaults both of them. Oh, excuse me. They consent. She's like, promise you won't tell Brad. She consents more. Brad, I think, ultimately ends up liking it. And let's be fair, they're a little bit more coy about whether Brad has full-on sex. However... They kind of cut away, but then when he comes back, he's having a kind of post-coital cigarette. But, like, basically, in both of those scenes, they are literally deflowered by a kind of bisexual satyr god figure, you know? That's a nice way to put it. So I guess what I'm saying is like the elemental aspects of this and the kind of Bacchanalian orgy are interesting. I just got a bit tired of them. And I also have to say about the music. Now, I know that the music is catchy. As Stephen Sondheim says, the only thing that makes a song catchy is a melody being repeated again and again and again. And it drills it into your head. That is definitely the case. They don't are, tell me they don't progress the plot, because they some of them, a lot of them do. They are shapeless. They do not progress the plot. Okay. But first of all, because... I'm sorry, the, I'm going to tell you Sean, examples there is There okay. is no plot. No, Brian, Sweet Transvestite sets up who exactly Frank is, okay? I can make you a man tells him everything he's been doing. The song Eddie completely tells you about who Eddie was and what he but, did. But see, this is what you're saying. What you're pointing out is they narrate some events... But that's very different in musical terms than actually advancing the plot, actually being drama. Like, first of all... Listen, we're not all Stephen Sondheim, babe. You told me to bring out the full grump. Like, here it is. Like... Put it away. I understand that it's not that kind of musical, and I shouldn't be assessing it in these terms. But, like, if the songs are going to be this shapeless, then they need to be better songs. Science fiction, Double Future, is a beautiful song. Is that the opening credits? Yeah. And I'll, another thing I liked, I liked the Samuel Beckett reference in the in the opening credits where the mouth is just flapping in the void. It's a beautiful it's title very sequence. Not I. Yeah. Isn't that a great title sequence? It is. Great. Yes, yes, it's good. I just Yes, yes, it's good already. The whole thing felt shoddily put together to me. I would say 60 to 70% of it did not work. The main performers, Sarandon, Bostwick, and Tim Curry were extraordinary. The other people, I would much rather have seen them live than captured on film, if that makes sense. They felt like people who were not actually good performers, who had been doing this again and again for years, and just kind of were tired in this. Do you think? You know Riff Raff is is Richard O'Brien. Yeah, I know, I know. And you know um, he wrote it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I'm aware of that. And you know Patricia Quinn is now called Lady Stevens. She, you know, Toby Stevens, the actor. Yeah. She's his stepmother. Well, that's all very and wonderful. And also, you know, little <laughs> Nell who played Columbia, she owned the famous nightclub Nell's, which referenced a lot in American Psycho. All of this is good, but like they are 
And Meatloaf, he was famous in his own right, like, too. But compare it to John Waters' movies, okay? Where he also has a mixture of professional and non-professional performers, and they integrate in this way that's not like this two tiers of like people who are actually selling you characters and roles in a great way, and then these other people who just seem like they're random LSD-tripping groupies who are just wandering around in half-finished makeup. God, Brian, say what you really feel, don't you? <laughs> So that's Brian's spewing of, I mean, very conflicted feelings about this Did you movie. like any of the songs? I, I liked, like, bars of songs that then got, like, and when I say bars, I mean they were, like, beating me over the head with an iron bar repeatedly again and again. Like, the time warp is catchy and goes nowhere. It's a great little dance. What about Touch It, Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me? Is that Janet? Yes! Yeah. You asked me about my sexuality, so this is the point where I'll answer. When it was all over, Brian said to me, you cannot have watched that and and not had any stirring for Rocky at all. And I guess in some ways, as Janet says, I don't like guys with too many muscles. But the thing is, I didn't identify with Rocky or Frank. I identified as Janet, who was the good girl who goes bad, who realises that, you know, I've tasted blood and I want more. More, more, more. takes to her sexuality with aplomb, but with a brazenness and a kind of a, a frivolousness that I really wanted to have. And I am jealous. But do you think you were aroused by Frank? Because I found Tim Curry incredibly sexy but in Frank this. is so dominating. He's so active. He's, but he's so well, but forceful. Yet, but interestingly, he's very active. He's nearly a rapist with Brad and Janet, but then it's also kind of implied that he's created Rocky as a kind of dominant top. So who's the top? Rocky he's, or him? Well, I think, like, on a pure physical sense, he's probably the passive partner and Rocky the insertive partner in the terms of how he's, like, ogling his body. Although, I don't know, maybe the whole thing is about versatility and fluidity and, like, flipping roles. That sounds quite believable to me. Since we are including this in our series, The Male Gaze, can we talk about masculinity a bit, and particularly the character of Frank and Furter? Sure. Because, I, like, I was thinking while watching this, like, this is so unreconstructed. Like, even though this is a post- Stonewall era, and in some ways is celebrating gender fluidity. Frankenfurter is a villain here. He certainly gets his comeuppance. He lures Brad and Janet into this kind of pansexual world, but he's also punished by his servants who come from the other planet. And as far as I could tell from the hastily cobbled together plot logic, it seems like he's being punished and destroyed because he's gone too far. He's become too decadent. He also kills Eddie. Yeah, so, like, I know he's enjoyable. 
But is he not a sexual predator who is ultimately destroyed? Well, think about the snake in the story of Adam and Eve. Uh Okay? So the snake, yeah, ultimately goes kicked out of Eden, but also gave us knowledge. You know, Frank gets punished. Frank gets killed by Riff Raff and Magenta. He also gave Brad and Janet a knowledge which they would never have had. But they leave the scene of the mansion after it's blasted off into outer space. They look spent and damaged as opposed to in postcordal bliss. There's a lyric in the last song which actually was cut out of the version that we saw, which I quite like. She says, superheroes come to feed to taste the flesh, not yet diseased. That good, isn't it? good. Yes. Um, is this movie a serious commentary on trans identity, or is it no. just... No. no, no, it is absolutely not. This is a commentary on what you want to do to live the life you want to live. Because I actually don't think Frankenfurter is a trans person, the way that he is represented. I think he is a horny, dominant male... Yeah. ...who likes to wear feminine clothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, essentially he acts like a... like a man... Most of the time. What's a a kind of predatory gay man. Or bisexual, (laughs) right? Like he's a hungry... They're all predatory. He's a hungry, horny... But do you know what I mean? Like I don't think it's exploring actually the concept of him being feminine other than wearing fishnets and stuff. But, But what does it say? It says that it is possible to be this very voraciously dominant, aggressive sexual type while still presenting as a very fluidic, I mean, he, I was going to say soft and gentle, but he's not. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Because he's, he's he's feminine only in the most sexualized of feminine garments or, well. or Yeah, in terms of, like, the clothing he wears. You know what, actually, another, in here, again, I'm going to sound like such a snob, but another... Um, another point, bit I didn't like. Point, no, point of reference here is the Bacchae. Do you know the Bacchae? Of course I know the Bacchae. Euripides. Of course I do. Essentially, he is the Dionysus figure who leads them into ecstasy, but also destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Through his kind of unbridled energy and Dionysian sexuality. I guess what I'm just saying is, like, all of that is interesting, but it's just like, I just wish it was better. That's fair enough. Okay. I watched it, and the thing that happened most was that I remembered how catchy the songs were. Yeah. And I've been... I always used to skip over over at the Frankenstein place, which is the one they sing when they're walking to the castle. And it's probably the one that I sing the most now. And I don't know why. I think I just quite like the sentiment behind it. There's a part of me that my heart kind of breaks for a very particular type of Sean that was. Yeah. Because, you know, we didn't talk about the 11 o'clock number, which is I'm going home. Think about what is home. Home is obviously the place where you're from. But home is also, you know, where the heart is, wherever you hang your hat, wherever you make it. Your family is your family, but also the friends you make, that kind of thing. And so even though Frank is talking about, you know, I'm going home, what does it mean? Does it mean he's going back to a place that he wants to go to or he belongs or that a place that he's forced to go to? Everywhere. It's been the same. Like I'm outside in the rain Free to try and find a game Cards for sorrow 
cards for pain Cause I've seen I realize I'm going home. And so the dichotomy for me about what is home was a big part of that number. Uh-huh. Because home was a place where, yes, I had my family and it was the place where I grew up and whatever, but it wasn't the place I wanted to be. You know, I want to be, I want to <laughs> be, was it, Vita? I wanna be a part of being Buenos Aires. Big Apple. That's a terrible <laughs> lyric, isn't it? But you know what I mean? Ava Peron, to reference a previous episode of Broad Peel, was from somewhere, but she also wanted to be from somewhere else. Well, so is Dorothy Gale. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're, just, you're just completely agreeing with what I'm saying. I know. But Dorothy Gale wanted to leave Oz, which was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> Well, she missed Auntie M. Oh, Auntie M was on her deathbed, you know? <laughs> I never watched Rocky Horror and felt sad after it. I always felt optimistic when I watched it. Because there is an optimism about it, about being whatever you want to be. And Brad and Janet, for better or worse, are changed. I value what you have described as your personal experience, and I actually wish that I could have watched this with 15-year-old Sean, because I think it would have been amazing. And this, for me, is a film about just free love. Who, who is Frank with in the film? He's with Brad and Janet and Rocky on screen. We're told that he's with, with Columbia and Eddie off screen as well. Yeah. He just fucks indiscriminately. Fat, tall, short, thin, muscle, meatloaf, everybody. Are, are you saying it's like one of these questions like Milton's Paradise Lost where Satan is... The narrative structure presents him as the villain, but actually we respond to him more than anyone else. Of course. Okay. He he educated Adam and Eve. Okay, Sean, listen. What you're saying about Richard O'Brien, he was a provincial boy in New Zealand. And I actually think something we haven't talked about this film, which is truly touching and truly feels authentic, is its kind of love of old movies, the references to Fay Ray and Steve Reeves and all these kind of B pictures and serials that he probably grew up loving. And I think, you know, when he finally made it to the big smoke to London, he made this affectionate tribute, which probably was quite charming on the stage. And then it traveled through the airwaves and across the Irish Sea and down the decades and reached another provincial boy who also loved movies and also didn't quite fit in. And that boy was you. And that boy loved this movie. All cynicism aside, that is quite sweet. So what are you saying? You like it then? No, I still think it's not a very good movie. I just like, you're just a very particular kind of person, Brian. This film probably was never going to resonate with you. No. Well, I just think you just kind of got fed up with it. I know, because I just couldn't take it. It's like eating too much marzipan. Well, I wouldn't eat any marzipan, to be honest. It's um, gross. I guess I'll just never talk about it ever again. <laughs> you know, for fear of talk, having my spirit crushed. Talk about it as much as you like. 
I'd like you to talk about it, and I'd actually love you to sing the songs. I would love. I would much prefer you to sing the songs to me Aww. than to watch the movie ever again. Well, I think science fiction is a beautiful, beautiful song. Should I sing a bit now? Go on. Science fiction, double feature. I love that song. It's a lovely, lovely song. You know, it's about cinema. This is a film about cinema. That is a lovely segue to our next film. I actually think we didn't necessarily plan this, but they're going to make a really interesting science fiction double feature, which is Tim Burton's biopic, Ed Wood, starring Johnny Depp. Ed Wood is a famous, schlocky, bad, low-budget sci-fi director from the 50s, and there are elements of transvestitism, transvestism in the film, now, you know I love Edward. Please, please come to it with an open mind and don't decide that because I didn't respond to this movie. No, that everyone says it. that Edward is probably Tim Burton's best film. And while we're on the subject of camp, Sean, this weekend, right now, as this is released, is the Fringe Film Festival here in East London, which you are part of the programming committee. There's lots of really wonderful, interesting queer filmmaking, a broad spectrum, but there is a great camp classic film that's one of your favorites screening tomorrow friday the 18th isn't there do you want to give them a warning about what film it is now a warning <laughs> i think that answers it don't you <laughs> michael shulman this is for you go see death becomes her friday the 18th at the rio cinema we'll be there it's a 11 30 show which is only half an hour before midnight um i'm very disappointed in you brian what what did I do? You encouraged me. You said be a grump. Yeah, I was ready. I was. Did you see how I was pussyfooting around it at the beginning, and you told me to go full grump. No, I told you to be yourself, and it turns out yourself is a big old grump. <laughs> you hate the things I love. <sighs> well, you win some, you lose some, don't you, Brian? <laughs> okay, so if you like this podcast, please tell your friends. Also, if you like it. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitchers. And if you do like the podcast, you can leave us a rating or review. I don't think anyone's ever done that. You can find us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod. We each have individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X. Brian is at BA Mullen Speaks. And join us in two weeks' time for Ed Wood. Bye, friends. Oh! Butter, deltoid, and bicep. Ah! Hot groin and a tricep makes me shake, makes me wanna take Charles Atlas by the hand in just seven days. Oh, baby, I can make you a man.